Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with two people who are going to introduce one another, though they don't know that yet. <laughs> Nick, who are you sitting, who's to your immediate right? I'm sitting next to Joe Littler, who um, is a good friend who, who works at City University um, and works in the field of... Uh, celebrity consumption and like-mindedness, and is a fellow. Is uh, a fellow. A fellow. Yes. A fellow. A fellow of the Institute of Long Fellows and Short Fellows. Short Fellows. And in between. We're all fellows. long fellows here. We're all long fellows here. And Joe, who is to your left? Uh, this is Nick Thoburn, who works at the University of Manchester in the sociology department. Um, who, although he lives in Washington, as we've just been discussing. Hi. Orange juice, please. Fresh orange juice. He's writing a piece on the politics of the family. He's about the material forms of political media, of textual political media. Communist objects, pamphlets, this kind of thing. And especially, he's become a happy young homeowner. And he has just become a happy young, young homeowner. homeowner. Well, indeed, for the second time, slightly unfortunately. There used to be a band when I was in college called the Happy Young Homeowners. Did there really? There really was. There was another one called People with Chairs Up Their Noses. That's a little bit more avant-garde, isn't it? And there was... And also... (coughs) Which was written down as Cough Cough. But we're not here to discuss it. We're happy to... We're we're happily here to discuss how people became happy young homeowners. In other words, I inveigled these two together to talk about Thatcherism. Because when she was elected in 1979, Mrs Thatcher, you guys were young, 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 barely around. So you were children growing up with all of this. Is that fair to say? Or, or did it not actually colour your lives in that way? Um, well, we both seven, especially on the same birthday. Well, well I'm, I have two years on top. And our partner's time is just Oh, that is, that's, yeah, get away. Yeah. That's creepy. That's creepy as all. He's just all of an OJ, don't worry. Yeah, I'm sorry. So you were you were seven and you were, I was nine. You were nine. I was nine. Oh, you're the older man. Older man. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember very clearly being woken up on the day after the election with, by my mother um, informing me that Thatcher and the Tories had won, Thank you. and knowing that this was a bad thing in heavy quotation marks, but of course not realising yet what it was. Thank you. And then and then. Um, yeah, Thatcher completely coloured my experience of teenage life, becoming politically active, going to university. Um, yeah, there was a strong feeling of her just hanging around interminably, and I think that was part of the thrill of her death, was that sense that you had outlived her. You know, there, there were li- certainly, you know, in certain parts of the country, particularly in the mining villages, where people really felt that their lives were on the line, to have outlived Thatcher it was a, a great thrill, I think. Whereas I probably had a very different upbringing in that I've been a lower middle class, quite pro Thatcher family. So there wasn't, I can't actually remember her coming to power, but I remember, like you said, that her constantly being there, this constant presence, you know, the, the headmistress of the country. The headmistress of the country. Yeah. The headmistress of the country. <laughs> yes. What a great expression. So what, what, your parents were anti... My, yeah, my parents were kind of, and, you know, sort of Labour, I guess. Solid Labour. Solid Labour. And, and your family was pro? Um, my mother was definitely pro when she came in, lower middle class female voter that Thatcher was really successful in wooing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my dad, was, my stepdad was always um, a bit more ambivalent, uh-huh. although I never was exactly sure at the time about his political leanings, but... Um, yeah, you know, manual labour, manual labourer, um, floating voter. Yeah, so not somebody who can be stereotyped as working class Tory or no. conventional labour voter at all, but actually a, your stepdad was a swinger, is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> In a way. <laughs> In a pipe smoking way. <laughs> can you be a pipe smoking swinger? This is a very good question, actually. Yeah. And, but it sounds as though it was a fairly depoliticised upbringing compared to Nick's. Was that, does that yeah, yeah, right massively. So, yeah, yeah completely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's probably longer to travel 
politically the road was longer but yeah but I was just thinking about it because I don't I didn't you know when I was growing up when I was a teenager I didn't go into any demos or anything like that um, demonstrations demonstrations but I'm not correcting you I'm no no I know for, your, your, for the international for the cosmopolitan listener yeah um, <laughs> But I was I was thinking that you know I was I was sufficiently red that when I was when I worked as a barmaid when I was 18 I was known as Red Joe for example mm. so red even Joe. though I didn't feel well, you shouldn't have massively. told me that <laughs> I know. I'm sorry in the research excellence yeah. framework the British government is instituting we're going to submit as much Red Joe as yeah. possible Red Joe when you were a barmaid and so that would have been 1990 around 1990 yeah. so towards the end of it's just yeah. when you're leaving school yeah. and starting work. So what had made you Red Joe? What's Apart from being a strawberry me? blonde, I guess that that's kind of reddish, isn't it? Um, well, I guess I was well when my when my mum got remarried when I was eight, and we moved from a kind of Middle England village, which Thatcher liked to insert herself into the iconography of. Um, we moved to the north and. Um, my stepdad's family was very, you know, my mum was kind of lower middle class and my stepdad's family was very working class and the kind of obvious distinction between the life opportunities that I might have just being lower middle class and the life opportunities that my stepdad and sisters might have being working class was very vivid and apparent and um, this didn't, this seemed to jar with the rhetoric <laughs> of, you know, everyone has opportunity, everyone has potential, everyone has ability to, you know, get whatever they want so the contradictions were, were very apparent and and became apparent in lots of other ways as well around you know race around gender that led me firmly towards the red Jonas and what about not wishing to get too personal about these things because of course that's maybe too private but in terms of your step siblings did they have radical politics as well, or was it something more in you in terms of seeing that a difference of privilege and opportunity within the new family? Yeah, the latter. The latter. Because one of the things that I guess I always find very frustrating about in Britain, and we, this is listened to in 50 countries, which is why I do try to contextualise. Of course. Yeah. You know, in hipster words from North London, like, demo. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, Toby. <laughs> yeah, no, Quite widely Sadly, used. when was the last one I saw? Um, I guess one of the things that, that uh, interests me in all of this is uh, how people come to recognise their own privilege, if it, even if it may be only relative and not very great, as opposed to the stereotype of the kind of guardianista North London reader of the vaguely left liberal daily paper we have in this country, who is the champagne socialist with actually, actually no reflexivity about mm. their own privilege. Do you know that the way in which the right often stereotypes yeah, yeah, as failing actually to think about its own circumstances, and without any notion that you might have become radicalised precisely through being able to objectify your life situation, mm. rather than see it as just a product of you. It's one in a series of very powerful stereotypes that the right has been very successful in mm. generating mm. and maintaining, perpetuating for a long time. You know, and that that stereotype is one, and another one is the kind of loony left that was that came into being around Thatcher's time. <laughs> I so. actually love that expression. I need to admit, <laughs> often based around um, stories of nursery rhymes. You know, this sort yeah. of sense oh, really? of which, so the um, a, a council was deemed to have banned. Um, uh, talk of a black sheep, for example, as a, as a metaphor for a bad person. You know, so. I think perhaps the, the, that that myth is more powerful now because of the loss of some of the broader, uh, intensive political struggles that there were during the 80s. So the anti-nuclear movement and the miners' strike and the poll tax forced many, many people, including middle-class kids, to kind of be politicised. For, with, with, with a kind of cause that was not located in their own subjectivity in the way that that myth suggests they became left. So the anti-Poltex movement was very much uh, uh, rooted in working class communities as well as among students and so on. So you quickly encountered, um, you know, class and conflict and struggle that wasn't based on your, 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 your 
yourself as a socialist or something, or your, your purity as a socialist. Or it's also because um, Thatcher was really successful in mobilising anti-intellectualism. And she mm. was, you know, she, if you think about it, she was, she was a barrister and a research chemist as well as a millionaire's wife. But she successfully mobilised this image of herself as, you know, just a grocer's daughter, just a humble grocer's daughter who had a handbag at the ready. Yeah. And you know that the kind of streak of housewife as well. Yeah, as yeah, exactly. Because so everybody that... needs a willy or something. Always back to willies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you know that kind of brings to bear that kind of anti-intellectualism, and because it's the left. You know, intellectual and bad because they're removed. Yeah. 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 One of the great expressions in the United States is how do you define a Democrat? Somebody with a PhD? Right, <laughs> yes. Well, Miliband has suffered from this, even though, of course, his class background is, is much uh, uh, more lowly than Cameron. Yet Cameron's sort of, all, he's not quite an anti intellectual, but that, that's the playoff like, between. So Ed, Ed Miliband is the leader of the opposition party, the Labour Party in the UK, and David Cameron is the Prime Minister. So I guess probably everybody knows that, but maybe well, of course, whose who's father was a political refugee and you know this, went Ed, to Ed state Miliband's school. Miliband's father and... was Ralph Miliband, a great Marxist political theorist. And his mother also a political refugee. Mm-hmm. So can I get back to the thing about you in the bar in 1990, <laughs> Joe? And being no. those red. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I know you don't want to go there. It's me who wants to go there. What was it about what you were saying and doing that had you labelled? Um, I can't remember specifically, but I imagine it was, uh, you know, something about just (laughs) not liking Thatcher and about um, being, you know, expressing some kind of affiliation with being anti-racist, anti-sexist, you know, saying there is such thing as a society, you know. Yeah, you're not, you're not trying to organise people to get more tips or higher wages or anything useful um, like that. As I did badly. As you're delivering red wine, I did quite saying, badly. Yeah. I really hate racism for <laughs> <to> the customers. <laughs> um, I did actually. I was. I really unsuccessfully organised <laughs> in one restaurant. I didn't really know the concept of unions, but I was part of a group where we just we just walked out. We didn't realise that you should walk out and then say we're kind of withholding our labour. We, we can go back. We just left because our wages were being cut. An instinctive unionism. Yeah, kind of instinctive unionism, which wasn't quite, quite thought through. In Spontane- spontaneous hyper radicalism. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I tried to double in that bar. I tried to double the tips, but that didn't really. That that got found out because it was covert. And Nick, by the time you get to university, I guess Thatcher's probably just won her third election. She won Would that her, be right? She won her third election. Um, I I took my driving test the day she won her third election. And Norwich, as I was driving around Norwich, this you know rather sort of uh, pretty uh, small city, the, the um, pillar boxes and all available space have been fly posted with posters saying third term, third right. And so wow. this was this kind of sense of coming into adulthood, you know, taking your driving test, and that just still being there, and there's still being strong opposition too. Um, I went to university in '89, so this is what two years after her, into her third term. Right. So, but you're well and truly in university when she's still prime minister. And are you also Joe, or, or are you only no, being Red Joe? You're, in, you're still being Red Joe. <laughs> So what happens when you get to college? Does it all feel different compared to growing up in Norwich? Um, yes, I, I mean, leaving home was a, you know, I had a wonderful um, charter, but leaving home was great. And I'm always very sad now when I see undergraduates who can't leave home and, you know, because of the cost of university have to stay in their hometown. So I went to Sheffield. Um, I just way in the north, from way in the Norwich. north of England, in the middle of the uh, mining communities, or by then the ex-mining communities. So there's a very strong um, feeling for struggle, I suppose, among working-class people, which is always very interesting. Um, and it felt very different. Yeah, there was a student movement. We had occupations. Um, the grants were being cut. Fees hadn't yet come in. That comes a bit later. But so the grants that Nick's referring to are direct aid from the national government to students, not only to implicitly to pay for tuition, but actually to support themselves. And to support themselves. It was the, if I remember correctly, we lost the grant to support ourselves during those first years. Um, 
and that combined with um, the poll tax movement, as I the the anti poll tax movement started when I was in my hometown, so late eighties, and then went into her uh, time. Can you explain the poll tax? Yeah, so it was one of Thatcher's. In the end, it was her 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 undoing. It was her sort of most kind of brazen moment where she decided that in place of a property-based local tax, all the local tax would be based on the on on your individual. On, all individuals would pay the same poll tax unless they got a rebate for being um, unemployed. Just for living somewhere. For living somewhere, for, for, um, for to fund local services, yeah. but it would, the, the rate would be the same for individuals regardless of income or wealth. So it's incredibly regressive. It's as, as regressive as you could get with uh, with taxation. She tried it out on Scotland first, which was typical of her. So the, the part of the country she hated the most to, to test this out. And when it came into Scotland and then into England, it caused um, an incredibly vibrant, intensive and um, community-based movement of struggle that ended up stopping, in effect, stopping the poll tax via a campaign uh, called Can't Pay, Won't Pay. Um, and people would flood the courts, they'd refuse to pay, they'd set up anti-poll tax uh, uh, unions in every locale and so on. And we, we, towards the end of her period, every time the poll tax was set in a, in a local authority, there'd be a sort of mini riot, basically. And each one of these got larger and larger until the enormous Trafalgar Square demonstration was sort of a huge a huge um, riot, where I think for the first time since the miners, people were prepared to sort of take on the state again, rather than just to sort of, um, rather than just to sort of walk passively through Hyde Park and demonstrate in that manner. So it was a very important moment, I think, in British history. And that brought her down. I mean, it showed how incredibly unpopular she was, and then eventually her party turned against her because of her unpopularity. Yeah, one of my great regrets in life is that she wasn't kicked out through a general election, mm. I have to admit. Well, so, it, well, except she was kicked out through the poll tax struggle. That's really what did. So it's, it's more direct in terms of democracy. Yeah. 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 And, you know, her party did the inevitable on the basis yeah. of, of that. Well, they're all, you know, the Tories in all these parties are always much more vicious. Than yes, yes. Labour they're, party. They're, they're happy to wield the knives. As yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they so what about the poll tax for you, Joe, in terms of your experience of this grassroots resistance that Nick's talking about? Um, well, I think I was much slower to come into political consciousness, even and though two I was years late. Younger, had, I mean, yeah, I was, a bit younger. We well, can imagine well. how much more radical I am. <laughs> I'm like a thousand yeah. years younger than both of them. <laughs> so, um, you know, I remember there being a lot of action against it. I, yeah. Um, I, you know, I remember it being around. Yeah, but it wasn't you were still at college, I guess, were you? Um, really I was, uh, yeah, I was sick from. And what about Section 28 or Clause 28? Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that was a big deal in my consciousness when I was occasionally visiting here. Yeah, well, that was a, a clause that was designed to um, not promote homosexuality. Against the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Yeah. And this was a big Thatcher number as well as yeah. part of this ideology of not just being the headmistress but the homeschool, home skills and maternal figure of the traditional family. Yeah. Mm. So very authoritarian. Yeah. And, and sort of culturally conservative. This is, yeah. That was the big shift with Blair, of course. He ditched the cultural conservatism and, yeah. and carried on with the yeah. It's also the big marker between one of the few differences between Cameron and Thatcher is now the Tories wouldn't dream of being so sort of culturally backward as to be opposed to homosexuality, and yeah. then that was ingrained in Tory. But no same-sex marriage in the Queen's speech we just heard. The no Queen's speech is the moment true. each year, I guess, is it? Yes. Yeah. When the government announces its programme for the following 12 months. Mm. I think the right? following six months. Six right? months, is it? Yeah. But in the, the immediate future, let's say. Yes. So, in terms of explaining the success of Mrs Thatcher electorally, even though by the end she was really scraping through, and in fact, you know, never had massive popular support. No. Because you can win elections without that in the UK. Yeah. How would you explain it? The kind of classic term for those of us in cultural studies is the one associated with Stuart Hall, authoritarian populism. Mm -hmm. So what, how, where would you guys situate that as an explanation? Do you endorse it? What, what was authoritarian populism? Does it help to describe her success? Well, 
I think I'd come in first to say that perhaps the, co the core was the, the, the popular neoliberalism. Now, of course, neoliberalism wouldn't be the expression that was used, but the sort of the, the emphasis on the autonomy of the, in of the individual in relationship to their property and given rights to express that through the sale of council housing. I, mean, I think that, you know, we have to bring in the right to buy the sale of council housing very early. Mm. Can you explain um, that to people, actually? That's an important concept. Yeah, so... Um, I think it was her absolute coup. I think this is the basis. This is the basis of much of her popularity in concrete terms, but also the, the broader culture that she set in play that we might call authoritarian populism. And that was the idea that um, uh, working-class people who lived in council houses or local authority houses would have the right to buy that house at a, a tremendous knockdown in its value, very, very cheap. Um, and in some ways, and of course this was very popular with, with um, working class voters because now um, the middle class has always done very well out of the welfare state. Well now working class individuals could do very well because wealth owned by the state was in effect transferred to them. And it would be hard to oppose that in principle, although it's not the great route to um, social progress because it's always so based around the model of the... Um, private property owner, but never, it's been hard to oppose that in principle, the real problem was that Thatcher prevented all of, the, all of the monies from the sale of those houses to be used to build any more social housing or any more council housing. So it was a deliberate attempt to decimate social housing and she, she very successfully did that. And of course now we have um, a very poor uh, and lack of housing stock, of cheap housing stock in the country, housing benefits has shot up which the Tories are trying to blame on the welfare state, but actually the reason it's shot up is because there's no social housing, so yeah. the state's now funding private sector housing. Yeah, which, um, is, which private landlords are making a lot of money out of because they can just price it really high. Right. And, so and the then people are being moved out of the centre of London you know, to go and live near the, near the, you know, the, the near in, in Essex. And, and part of the problem with this is that London is where the jobs are, mm. but the housing stock is woefully inadequate. So yeah, yeah. This seems to me to be the crux of the big problem with Thatcherism at an economic level. The privatisation model was used as a cheap way of getting money to pay for the government's outlays in the same way that North Sea oil yeah. was used in that sense, whereas in other countries that were more sensible, whatever privatisation they did wasn't just used in order to uh, keep taxes low. Mm. It was actually invested. Look at Norway as the classic example of what to mm. do with North Sea oil. Mm. So Britain got the worst of both the Dutch disease, yeah. which is where you become overly reliant on natural resources as a one-off means of buttressing your governmental receipts, and the worst of privatisation ethos, which is the same process but is selling off what are useful public entities that are part of social services and you know it was an extraordinary disaster. Mm -hmm. But anyway, enough of that. So that was what you think was very important to securing consent, right? The capacity of people to own their own homes who were working class. Right. And, and this is this applies to a very large proportion of the population. I think Norwich, the town I grew up in, it's probably a third of the housing stock at one point was social housing. So this is a huge kind of um, um, mechanism of, of, of inducing popular investment in her party and creating this model of the, the individual in the property-owning democracy, as she called it. Mm. Um, so appealing to people's sense of themselves as an inquisitive consumer subject rather than a kind of socially embedded subject. So that, that's the popular side of it, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and also, you know, it, it did go hand-in-hand hand with her dislike of you know the British culture of deference to some extent even though she you know she kind of funds the rich through tax cuts and increases in employment and you know income inequality when she's she's in charge I think it expands more quickly than at any time in recorded history but at the same time she has this um, you know part it's part of the kind of anti-intellectual impulse again she has this and the, the positioning of herself as a grossest also she doesn't you know, she kind of tries to do away with the, the motifs of traditional class-based hierarchies in order to consolidate a kind of new kind to some extent, although she also harks back to um, you know, imperialism and greatness and Churchill. Can you talk so. more about the anti-deferential part? That's interesting to me. Well, you know, she, 
she positions herself as a grocer's daughter, and you know the, the fact that she she becomes prime minister, and you know she, she positions herself as trying to, um, you know, she, she tries to, to get the kind of working classes on side as thinking it's people's natural right to become mm. home owners and to try and get away with people's sense of themselves as being different, different, different. But it's the ideology of meritocracy, isn't it? That somehow that class is simply about sort of uh, entrenched um, in, and inherited uh, differentials of. Um, of wealth and access, and somehow you just you remove those as the, as the myth goes, and pe individuals sort of rise up and and succeed at, on the basis of their own their own will. Mm. Um, and she's seen as the prime example of that, yeah. even though of course she married into um, great wealth. Very well. Yeah. So part of this is also the distance she manages to take from the Tory party, isn't it? Yeah. From the part of her talent yeah. is to say the government does bad things, and that's the traditional Conservative party. Yeah. I am not the traditional. Conservative Party, I am you. Yeah. Is that part of what Yes, although yeah. it's the, the traditional Labour Party would be worse because of the model of society that that was seen to, 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 to prom, prom, promulgate. But, but yes, certainly. I, I mean, at the, at the same level, a very strong investment in sort of traditional cultural values. So it's, she's not a modernist, you know, as Blair was, or moderniser yeah. as Blair was. She's Hence a kind of Victorianist. A Victorianist, <laughs> that's yeah. what she is, yes. So is, is this where the authoritarian part? comes in? Is that an important part of the appeal? Yes, it's partly socially authoritarian in that it's um, you know, harking back to a very specific idea of the nuclear family that's very heteronormative. Um, it's very, it's an imperialist. It's, it's about white privilege and white power, um, and it's also authoritarian in what it does in terms of you know its imperial exploits in the Falklands. <laughs> For example, uh, it's it's you know racism at home, the way in which it redefines nationality and says to people in the Commonwealth, you, you can't come to Britain anymore. That's what she did with the 1981 Nationality Act. So, can you explain what the Commonwealth is? Because actually, a lot of people won't know. That is. Not that in fact, <laughs> the deep secret is no one knows where the fucking Commonwealth is, but my father wrote some books about it, so when he was still alive, I used to ring him up and say, what is it today? It's like that. What does he say? <laughs> well, what he disclosed to me, something I'd never realised, was that the former Rhodesian Al Zimbabwe was never part of the empire, uh, even though it became part of the Commonwealth. It was a limited stock company. It was not a British imperial possession. No, I didn't know. But anyway, the Commonwealth of Nations is what happens when the empire is renamed and dispersed around the, the beginning of the independence movements in the 50s. Uh, and it sustains itself partly as the every four years Commonwealth Games, a sports event, uh, but also as a rather lightweight international relations participant or player, you know, located here. And it's all the English-speaking countries that were part of the British Empire after the uh, independence of the United States, basically. So Canada's in it, amongst the white settler colonies, but also countries that are only partially English-dominant, like Malaysia. And it's a sort of ginger group, it's a chat fest, it becomes one of the more interesting formations within the Global South. Anyway, mm. so I'm sorry I just answered my question. But in any event, so there's, tell me about the Falklands War slash the Malvinas, because this seems as though it was pretty important. It occurs when her popularity is low towards mm. the end of her first term, if I get that right. Yeah. And this is very low. Very low. She was the most unpopular post-war Prime Minister at that point. At that point. Now, can you explain why the popularity was so low and what the Falkland slash Malvinas business was all about? Because we're revisiting a little bit of it today in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the popularity was partly so low because there was massive unemployment. Um, and she, you know, she wasn't ex expected to respond to the Argentinians' reclamation of the Falklands, and she, and she did, and she kind of chose this as a moment in which to kind of resuscitate imperialism um, very, you know, very successfully. It was very popular in Britain. She managed to mobilise this spirit of the Blitz, but you know, instead of the enemy being Nazism, it was, you know, it's post-colonial post power. power. Yeah. The Blitz is the moment during the Second World War when London in particular, but 
other major British cities as well were the targets of uh, German aerial warfare in ways that, of course, none of us would ever do. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, the Argentine government, which has long laid claim to the Falklands, which are a British imperial possession still, mm. was of course a military dictatorship at the time, which mm. collapsed in the following year. Although nowadays the Argentine left says that, that had nothing to do with the disaster of the reclamation of the Falklands slash the Malvinas. Mm. But she becomes immensely popular at this moment, even though it was her incompetence, quite clearly, mm. that led to the Argentine takeover of the islands. I mean, she'd been warned by Callaghan, James Callaghan, the previous uh, Prime Minister of the Labour Party, and Lord Carrington, her Defence Secretary, that this was likely to happen and had done nothing. I think right? she'd removed some of the key um, Navy uh, presence in the yeah. area shortly beforehand. So she's to blame for this apparent imperial disaster. I mean, I think in strategic terms, that's become very clear with the release of some documents in the last few months, even yes. if it was obvious probably to all of us at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But in any event, how, Nick, I think you, how does this play into the authoritarian stuff, do you think? Well, certainly this model of a, of a as Joe said, a kind of um, a, a sort of neo-imperial sort of moment, um, which was expressed there, that also tied in with her sort of deranged uh, love affair with Reagan and the sighting of cruise missiles in, in Britain around the, the, the camps, the RAF camps in Norfolk and so on. Um, but also an internal authoritarianism. She made it very clear at the start when she decided shortly before election that she, in 79 that she would um, um, have a sort of a direct confrontation with the unions mm. initially through the miners or at least not the miners was the, the miners strike was the big kind of moments of confrontation. And, and the mining industry we should say was largely nationalised. It was all nationalised then yes. Mm. I mean I think it'd be nice to come back to the miners strike yeah. in, in a tip but one of the um, key dimensions of that was recognising that the police would really be the front line of that struggle so she dramatically increased pay to the police force particularly through sort of overtime and so on um, and, and used them as, as an authoritarian front line against the unions so in Wapping against the print unions in the north of England against the miners in the inner cities in Brixton in particular in Toxteth um, so they had a policy known as Swamp 81, um, the name itself is quite telling, where the police would invade um, inner cities like Brixton and just um, arrest, stop, arrest, search um, young black men. Um, so it's about a thousand young black men, wasn't it, just before, in the first six days um, after that she gave the police more powers to stop and search, and there's about a thousand kids stopped and searched in Brixton. And, and the whopping instant, instance that was just mentioned is about uh, the London Times, owned by Rupert Murdoch at that time and since, shifting its printing operations to bust unions and doing so in some kind of deal that's still quite murky in our understanding of it today, organised between Murdoch, uh, the government and the police. Yes, exactly yeah. that. Exactly. The, so the police is a very clear, clearly sort of employed political force for her for her approach. And the areas that were just mentioned, uh, like Toxteth, which is uh, in Liverpool, in Liverpool uh, and um, part, inner city parts of London, were historically, and to a certain extent still are, working class and Black. Well, that, that raises the point you, you, or well, that touches the point you raised earlier about the Commonwealth, of course. So, one of the, the, the big story of Britain's sort of post war um, uh, politics of race is, is Commonwealth uh, migrants sort of leaving, coming to what they saw as the mother country in many ways and encountering extreme racism mm. at a kind of personal and structural level. And places like Brixton were, at one level, the site of those kinds of racism and another period places where kind of black cultural forms or working class black cultural forms were able to develop and and have huge um, hugely interesting and sort of progressive impact on British culture and at the same time sites of um, you know struggle against the police against um, uh, oppressive landlords and so on and then after the riots I mean these get taken up and framed by the media as you know the race riots although you know Toxteth isn't you know, Toxteth is more white than black in terms of the people involved in the rioting. Can you explain the riots a bit to us? These are not the riots of a couple of years ago no, in North London. They kind of got edited out of that. <laughs> but the, the, the riots that occurred, even, well, 81, wasn't it? Yeah. Summer of 81 and 83. Yeah. 81, I think it's yeah. 83. So, what were they about? 
who was in there? Um, well, like Nick said, they they kind of happen in '81 after the the Nationality Act comes into being, and this reconfiguration of who should be British is kind of you know popularised. And then the police are given more powers too, and so after the police are given a lot more power to stop and search people who they think might be you know doing something wrong allegedly, which like use, red yes, <laughs> uses a, a smoke screen to to demonise groups of people. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people get stopped and searched in Brixton, um, and there's there's mass unemployment, and people are really pissed off. <laughs> Wonder and why? Yes, I know, it's strange. <laughs> and um, you know, so the kind of rioting in the streets that happens after that becomes becomes framed very much in the media by as being due to due to race and about race and ethnicity, even though it's obviously. You know, as much about class. Class as it is, yeah. The, the framing of people as as racialised. Um, and and as you said, the the, um, the riots in the eighties involved many working class white people as well. Yeah. These, these weren't only black communities. Can I can I ask you other points of resistance at this mm. moment? Because I'm thinking that around the same time you have the women of Greenham Common, mm. and you mentioned cruise missiles being located in Britain in terms of Ronald Reagan's Cold War strategies. Can you talk a bit about the women of Greenham Common, where that is and what they were doing, and how that relates to the revival of a campaign for nuclear disarmament? Because this was a very big deal, harking back in many ways, 20, 25 years. Well, certainly when I was growing up in Norwich, the anti-nuclear movement, or CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was hugely important for, for, for my kind of... Um, group and I think our generation and there was a lot of uh, um, direct action uh, against um, the bases where Cruz was either being housed or was, was about to be housed and Greenham was the, the, the epicentre of that, you know, a camp or a series of camps um, ex run by and exclusively for women located around the perimeter of um, Greenham Common um, RAF base, I think that was the name of the base. Um, and it had a huge impact on, on culture more broadly, I think. It was, it was very sort of known. Everybody knew about Green and Common. There would be regular, um, uh, there'd be regular sort of stories on the news and so on about the camping endlessly um, torn down by the police and so on. And then they'd, they would, with great sort of tenacity, they'd sort of rebuild and rebuild and rebuild. And of course it was a huge moment for the anti-nuclear movement, but also for feminism. There were plenty of working class women involved. It wasn't only a, a kind of middle class campaign. Um, and that later starts to feed into the, um, not directly necessarily, but into the women against pit closures support for the miners. So that sense of there being a, a, a line through the 80s that was about a kind of class-based feminism mm. as well as just yeah. sort of class politics. Which is really important and which is why Billy Elliot always really pisses me off because it completely edits that out and, and makes the women, it puts the women in that, you know, in that film, in that story, it puts them on the opposite side of any left politics. They're, you know, positioned as the, the voice of reason. They realised that the pits were going to close. They realised that the, the strike was pointless. So they're kind of very much Thatcher's subjects. When the reverse happened. Yeah, yes. when the, the reverse happened. Lots of... Could we go on to talk about the mining stuff? I'm going to take a quick whiz, but you guys can talk about that for hours. So why don't you just go on amongst yourselves <laughs> while, while, while I make a little intervention or outervention? Outervention. An outervention. Too much tea. So, I mean, the, the you know the 84, 85 minus strike was the um, defining political moment for Thatcher's time, and I think since our birth, really. I mean, nothing has, has rivaled it as a for its significance as a turning point in labour struggles and in broader politics. I think so. Effectively, the um, trade union movement was was um, demolished in that strike. That was Thatcher's deliberate effort. Yeah. Um, she knew that if she could if she wanted to take on the unions that um, she had to take on the miners. Mm. And if they were beaten then the other unions would in effect fall as they did throughout the eighties. Yeah. And to some extent it was you know, deliberately planned, isn't it? it was, no, it was deliberately yeah. planned. There were the White Law reports, you yeah. know, planned out the, the the process building up the stocks of coal, um, you know, and so on. Buying cheap coal from South Africa and from apartheid South yeah, Africa and using so on. the oil. Yes, and instead. using the oil. Mm. 
and and it's one of the one of the beautiful things about Thatcher's death was seeing um, um, mining communities like Goldthorpe and so on in the north of England um, celebrating her death joyously you yes. know, with effigies of Thatcher and whole communities having coming out for sort of possessions as though it was um, you know a sort of uh, a great fate and I think some people have been sort of upset about celebrating death but I think these people are celebrating having outlived Thatcher they're celebrating their struggles against Thatcher yeah. they're showing that this um, whitewash that the uh, the establishment that's been trying to present over the last 10 years that Thatcher was somehow just a great leader and good for the nation that all of that's a myth and I, I took great pleasure in seeing the establishment forced to recognize that so even the BBC was showing on the day of Thatcher's funeral was showing clips of people cheering um, mm. her, 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 her end and so I think a, a, a degree of sort of fracture has opened up in the whitewash of Thatcher over the last century. It's true, though. At the same time, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of it's galling and horrific the extent to which that the funeral was that the whitewash affair. You know, it was it did promote her as this great statesperson, and it had been planned for a really long time. You know, she planned her funeral precisely with Gordon Brown, and then planned mm. it with Cameron, and it was this very, you know, huge stateswoman-like funeral. But I think it just wasn't as maybe I'm clinging on to source, but it wasn't as successful as I would have expected. Yeah, I think the turnout was, was low. <laughs> turnout was low, and there were all these sort of anti-Thatcher parties yeah. that, that happened. It was almost spontaneous. Well, some of them spontaneously, of course, it but um, one of them had been planned for a really long time, hadn't it? Yes, the, yeah, for the ten years. after Thatcher dies, yes, he goes to Trafalgar right. Square. Yes. Um, what about the fact, I, one of the things that struck me at the time of her death, and I happened to have been at Nick's yes, old yes. house before he moved on to the new <laughs> sort of George Harrison mansion, <laughs> you know, with all rock stars and lecturers in sociology eventually. Yeah, yeah obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, was the way in which the music of the time mm. was resuscitated and talked about. We talked about it mm, that no, night, we did. didn't we? So I'm thinking of, and maybe you guys could expand on this a bit, movements or formations, whatever we call them, like Red Wedge and Rock Against Racism, and individuals and bands like Billy Bragg and The Flying Pickets and Paul Weller, Style Council, The Clash, you know, these sort of... Um, a lot of white guy music that took off uh, the Smiths, the way in which the music of the Smiths halfway through Thatcher's period was so emblematic that in the days after her death we had Tory ministers in this government talking about how they as teenagers danced to it while you had members of the Smiths saying you are not fucking allowed to yeah, listen yeah. to or talk about <laughs> any of that work, yes, yes. and and you actually had interviews with these Tories saying it's like I never understood the lyrics, I just like jumping up and down. Mm, they're not allowed to. <laughs> well, and, the, and the line, of course, politics and music never mix. You know, so one's allowed to ignore the lyrics because somehow that that's not not the point. Yes, I, I think that's part of Thatcher's, in effect, kind of. Um, uh, democratization of Toryism, if you if you can put it like that, you know the sort of detraditionalization of the Tory Party that now they can like the Smiths as well. But um, in terms of the in terms of the music as an expression of um, cultural tension and politics and, and so on, I think it's it's funny because of course this was this is our, our youth, so it's the only it's the only moment that we know as a relation between youth culture and our, our own experience or my own experience. But it did feel as though as though politics was fundamentally important to musical form. I mean, to, well, to musical content, but also to form. Um, I mean, Paul Gilroy put out some very, I think, important tweets during the Thatcher, the Thatcher sort of um, parade, um, marking key uh, roots reggae and dub tracks that were anti-Thatcher as well. So we, we're used to the sort of white, you know, Elvis Costello and shipbuilding and Tramp the Dirt Down and so on, which, we, you know, all of that was very important to me, but it was also a very strong black musical critique of Thatcher as much as a white one. And, and, and the cross-race thing, like UB40, yeah. UB40 uh, named, special. named after a form that you had to fill out to yeah. claim unemployment benefit, well, they, the specials bit. I, you know, my, the first track I played when I heard 
that she died with UB40's Madame Medusa, a 12, a 12 minute um, uh, 45 about this sort of this evil gorgon that had dominated the culture for so long. Um, you know, and the, the specials um, obviously hugely important for trying to break break the move that was happening in the late 70s of white working class youth towards the NF, the National Front, the, the racist party. Um, so they were fighting those tensions even in the gigs. The National Front would turn up to their gigs and the, the kind of anti-racist skinheads and the racist skinheads would be, you know, fighting. So, um, very, very important, I think. Now, punk begins before Thatcher mm. and has its most famous moments in the last days of the prior Labour regime. But what about punk as opposed to dub and reggae? And and what about women's issues and female singers and other artists in all of this? Well, there were, there were you know, bands like The Slits, very important female punk bands. Um, I think I, specials are very much, they, obviously they weren't a punk band, but that Scar revival came out of some of the punk cultures, and certainly the anti-racism came out of the punk cultures. There was the significance of um, bands like Misty and Roots, a reggae band in the uh, anti-Nazi league, again as a white and black crossover. I'm, I'm trying to think of women in Wed Reg, Red Wedge, so people like Alison Moy, I suspect, were in Red Wedge, I'm not certain. Was Sade in Red Wedge? She probably was, yes, but I don't think she was particularly political. I don't yeah. have much memory. Yeah. She could have. She was kind of associated with wine bar music. Oh, so you were? So. Yeah. Were you working in any of these possibly. wine bars? <laughs> I yeah, can't yeah. possibly comment. I said Red Joe. You yeah, remember no, the senior lecturer, Red Joe? <laughs> It's true, the wine bar, you know, it sounds so yeah. kitsch now, doesn't it? But yeah, that was the kind of cultural avant-garde of oh, it. Now, tell me about that. That interests me a lot, actually. What was the cultural avant-garde of the wine bar? Well, it's not necessarily avant-garde, <laughs> it's quite mainstream. Yes. So, And it's, it's part of the, you know, new configuration of meritocracy and gender. So wine bars open and they're kind of pitched as both yucky spaces where people can drink wine um, and sort of look aspirational and look slick and smooth. They're also much more feminised spaces than, than your old, you know, your, your stereotypical pub, which is a more masculine, you know, especially working class masculine domain. So they're, they're cross-party gender in that. Did the traditional pubs here have ladies bars at all? I don't think we had ladies, but the saloon, a, perhaps. The snug. The snug. The snug. The snug. What's the snug? a snug? I don't know that. Um, it's usually where men go to smoke, is that right? Well, I thought it was more where the couples and families went, but, okay. I could be wrong. but it's a small area in a pub, yeah. so accessible to the main bar but tucked away. Often yeah. very cute little spot. If you find a snug these days, you take They're very good for toddlers now. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> I was in a pub the other day that had a children's room. Okay, that was probably a snug. A That's probably a snug. Because I was in Australia for most of the Thatcher period, and one of the things that I used to do was go to the women's bars, which were parts of traditional parts of pubs, and you would order a pony, and a pony was sort of a lady's version of, an old lady's version of a beer. It's about the size of a shot. It's in a shot glass, but it has beer in it. And I used to love ordering a pony. And I would sit there with the other old ladies. I was 28, but moving in their direction quite rapidly. I always found these places, they weren't exclusionary. Men were welcome in them, but men didn't tend to go into them. Or have ponies, clearly. <laughs> they certainly wouldn't have drunk a pony. But I liked a quick one, you know, after getting off the bus on the way back from work and before going home. A quick pony with the other old biddies. A levelling pony. Yeah, I know. It just sort of brought me back after all the coffee of earlier in the day. Okay, so this cultural resistance stuff is very interesting, I think. What about the formal entities of supposed political opposition, like the trade union movement uh, and the Labour Party? and what becomes the Greens, you know, and the Liberal Democrats, which emerge out of a split within the Labour Party, joining with the traditional Liberal Party. Can we talk about that very capital P politics world? Yeah, my, yeah I, I said my parents were, um, were sort of old Labour in many ways, and I think for, for, I don't know, we might disagree on this, but for my, for my sort of experience of growing up, it was a, a very quick realisation that the Labour Party were really incapable of doing anything to challenge the, 
the neoliberal agenda. So there was a sort of old new Labour split, the new Labour succeeded, and of course we then found out they carried on the neoliberal project. But I think CND, anti-poll tax, all of that was based on a almost a principle that the Labour Party would not be a solution to those problems and in many ways it instituted them when they were operating at local level. So the council in Sheffield where I did my degree was often seen as this as a, a focal point for the start of New Labour, for example, um, you know, five years before the event. Um, the Labour Party itself seemed to be I don't know, having this tension between a modern, quote, modernising agenda and a more Michael Foot-based traditional agenda. It was fighting with some of the Trotskyist groups that were either entrying or not entering. Or this entryism is one of the great words of English language <laughs> that was popularised at this time. Uh, can you explain entryism? One of my favourite concepts. It's a, it's a Trotskyist notion. I think it's exclusive to Trotskyism that um, that says you can enter a, a large mainstream political party, sort of loosely of the left, and um, I don't know, not quite subvert it from within, but turn it to a more socialist agenda. And Britain had a party called Militant, or the Militant Tendency, who had some prominence in, in certainly in Liverpool Council. They ran Liverpool Council for a while. And um, they were entryists in the Labour Party, and at a certain point, Neil Kinnock, in this sort of this quite sort of camp affair, really, would sort of stage the throwing out of militant tendency from one of the Labour Party's conferences. He was the leader of the Labour Party for much of its time in opposition, uh, and was its leader when it lost the 1987 election against Thatcher and the 1992 one against her successor, John Major. Right. But so this was a this was a kind of uh, a, a politics, a struggle in political parties at the level of their sort of formal organisation and their ideology. But in both cases, militant and Labour, my feeling and, and that of my friends at this time was that none of these were, were rooted in in I don't know more direct struggles and, and struggles around everyday life and struggles mm. around culture. Um, so in that struggle between militants and Labour, for example, neither side were, were mine or, you know, many of my friends. So they hadn't really learned enough lessons from 68. They really hadn't. Um, in, the no. same, in the way that, say, the GLC, the Greater London Council <laughs> um, had done, you know, which is much more successful in mobilising feminism, anti-racism, peace movement in its politics and kind of constructing a popular culture and popular vocabulary and popular events, you know, festivals around around that politics. So so Thatcherism was very successful in developing a language that and an ideology that could appeal to people and have a have traction, but the Labour left didn't on the whole didn't. and was split by the SDP and Social Democrats, yeah. who went on to form a new party with the Liberals that I mentioned before, that is now in coalition with today's Tories. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the Greater London Council at that time? Because this is an interesting case. It's one where Thatcher has to destroy the entire council yeah. in order and to stop them, system. doesn't she, in some sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, the GLC, was it, was it about mid-60s to mid-80s? It was called the London County Council yeah, the London when County I was a child, and that changed, I think it was still that in about 1970, mm. right about that time, sometime then it becomes this greater London Council. Yeah. You can still see fire stations with LCC yeah. as an acronym emblazoned, as it were, in the concrete mm. within which the fire mm. trucks are housed. And um, Ken Livingstone ran it in the 80s and um, you know, lots of really interesting projects and lots of very interesting people, some of which some of you are now academics, like Paul Gilroy, Doreen Massey were kind of involved. Sheila Robotson. Sheila Robotson, yeah. Justin Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're involved in, in it, its project in different ways. So. Um, and then Thatcher, it was too popular, Thatcher wound it up, <laughs> and as she wound up all the metropolitan councils yeah. as well, and um, the LCC the, so the GLC is now the London Aquarium and a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and rightly so, as part of the great democratising project of decentralising yes. authority, which is so crucial to Thatcherism, <laughs> not. So in terms of some of the things they did that are mythic, 
and I use that in both positive and negative senses, this was about opening up some of the culture industries to women yeah. and minorities. Yeah, and so, you know, it had a really interesting, innovative cultural policy as well, so it was about, you know, its policy wasn't just about opting for the masses, it was about uh, increasing local community radio stations and, you know, getting people involved with local projects and, you know, participatory politics, basically. On a, a much too much more imaginative and creative and thorough degree than the Labour Party was interested in. And seeing treating London as a as a as a city full of kind of resources for people rather yeah. than for commerce. So yeah. Yeah. And having a very explicit anti-racist discourse and using that as something to attract people rather than something to apologise over. Mm -hmm. you know. There's a famous article in the journal called Cultural Studies, which is entitled something like GLC RIP, oh, yes. Rest in Peace, isn't it? I forget new Formations. It. Oh, New Formations, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a guy called Franco Biancini. Ah, yes, that's right. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, folks, we've got about five minutes left. I'm sure there are lots of things I haven't asked you about because I'm just too ignorant of them. So, are there issues you'd like to raise, including about the legacy, you know, because, yes. for example, we all remember, well, I do, that in, in 1971, when Richard Nixon and the President of the United States, they were all Keynesians now, and five minutes later, nobody was. Yeah. At the moment of Thatcher's death, David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, said we're all Thatcherites now. Mm. Well, that, that's entirely true, and I think it is very important to um, underscore that the legacy of Thatcher is our present, and we are now... We're not all only Thatcherites now. We, we now live in a much more Thatcherite society than we ever did under her. Um, so the, the neoliberal um, uh, forcing of uh, markets and big business into every aspect of social life that it can, can conceive with it, um, and the, 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 in effect, the state guaranteeing profits for capital while at the same time forcing the, the populace to, to bear the costs in terms of reduced services, reduced wages, reduced conditions, uh, poorer benefits. That is the privatisation of risk and the, uh, sorry, the privatisation of profit and the socialisation of risk. That's all, um, that's all run at a pace under Cameron, you know, much more intensively than it did under Thatcher. And with this huge rise of the grotesque inequalities that we see now, which, as Joe mentioned earlier, so yeah, we're very much in the in the, still in the neoliberal sort of way that Thatcher sparked off. I think it's it's double-edged. Um, so on, on the one hand, yes, that's true. You know, she was the kind of conduit or agent of neoliberalism. She opened the floodgates that you know Blair continued, Brown continued, Cameron continues. And on the other hand, the kind of but on the other hand, the kind of formation of Thatcherism isn't with us to the same extent. So it's you know it's authoritarian populism, it's re regressive modernisation isn't there in the sense that that you know kind of racist sexist project was supplanted and, and changed during the Blair years into something much more kind of socially liberal, um, which Cameron really picked up. You know, so yes. Cameron is a product of Thatcher and Blair. So, so it's the US model of socially liberal economic reaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Thatcherism both won in terms of its neoliberal project and it's, um, it's a different beast in terms of its cultural purchase. One of the things that I found perturbing after her death was that there were elements of clear misogyny and a very gendered kind of delight in her demise. Words like Harridan. Oh, that was sad yeah. to see. I'm, I'm wondering if you guys would comment a bit about that. I think it's really difficult this issue because if you you run the risk very easily of um, if, you, if you point out the the, the the sexism within that of becoming an apologist for Thatcher, which no one wants to be, um, and also because it's difficult because she was such an anti-feminist herself. You know, she kind of combined this anti-feminist um, position with a kind of iron lady, iron lady kind of hyper chauvinistic persona. And you know, little, little women of the hearth, all at the same time in this this bundle. So it's it's you know, and, the, and there was there was misogyny in what she did, and there was misogyny in how people related to her. So she fed it at the same time. So that's why it's you know interesting. And no women in her cabinet. There was one member of the House of Lords briefly, but no mentoring. Yeah, there's, there was. I heard a, of lots of young men. Yeah, there was a really interesting piece I just kind of half caught during her death on the radio, and it was a, a Tory MP saying that she tre she treated women in the party as second-class citizens. Yeah. So 
she was a kind of um, yeah there was a really interesting piece by Russell Brand in the Huffington Post where he was saying that she broke the glass ceiling and the, and the glass fell on other, oh, other the women below so yeah is that the same story where he wrote about seeing her in her dotage that's right. watering yeah, her yeah. that was in the, the Observer yeah. I think or something yeah it got reproduced well. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, is Ed Miliband a Thatcherite? Is there any other out there in terms of formal politics? I think now? Joe's point, the, the real legacy is, is neoliberalism, and he's certainly, a, we, we hope he might ameliorate neoliberal economic policy a little bit, but I don't have much hope, to be honest. Yeah, well, you know, he's a charisma vacuum, so we're not holding out a huge amount of hope. Charisma vacuum. Well, you know, he's also, you know, he's kind of he's positioned as a sixth former, you know, this ingenue who's very much part of the elites. Yeah. But we, with the NHS privatised, <coughs> National Health Service, National Health Service privatised, schools privatised, universities privatised, it'd be very little for the Labour Party to to um, to work with after the next election. They're certainly not going to renationalise the NHS. Much of the much of the hollowing out of the NHS via um, private firms was done under Labour anyway. So you know it's, it's turning the clock back a long way for the Labour Party to do it. So it's got a lot of work to do, basically. So there are, there are some people that are kind of interested in revitalising it from the roots and and you know pushing a more radical agenda. But they, they they're you know finding it hard to get people involved. So is Thatcherism an incomplete project or is it a project completed by Labour under Tony Blair? The, the neoliberal strand is, is very much pushed forward by Blair, hugely, and in more social progressive guys. Stuart Hall framed it very well shortly before Blair won when he said that we that this is really the sort of the triumph of neoliberalism because it no longer needs the conservative the, 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 the culturally conservative agenda of Thatcherism. That's mm. kind of that's done its work now. So neoliberal capital can just yeah. you know fly with Blair and then with um, Cameron. So he calls it the double shuffle. Does he the double yeah. shuffle? Yes, exactly. Well, Joe and Nick, thank you both very much. I hope you'll come back into the pod to discuss your new jointly authored work, Thatcherism, a quasi-incomplete project. <laughs> thank you.